Welcome to today's episode of the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast, where we offer bite-sized lessons and steps that you can implement as a part of your journey towards becoming the very best that you can be. This is your podcast host, Brigitte Borenstein, and just so you know, for planning purposes, we release a new episode the first and third Tuesday of every month with some amazing guests. Thank you so much for joining me for today's discussion. I hope you'll return my handshake to you. You can do that through becoming a part of this community on Instagram, my website, bestyoucanbe.com, or by subscribing and leaving helpful comments. So hello, Shannon. Welcome to the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Brigida. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your time because you are, as I can only imagine, especially busy at the moment with the release of your brand new book. Just very, very recently, has it just been a whirlwind? It is certainly a whirlwind. Yeah, no, but it's wonderful to have the grit factor out in the world for sure. And it's, um, it's a real honor to have a chance to share it with as many people as possible. That's, that's so, so great. So uh, I just want to tell our listeners who you are. So Hey guys, so I'm super excited about an amazing guest we have today and I want to give her a formal introduction and also give you her bio and background so you can place her in the right context before you hear all of the amazing information she's got for you guys. So Shannon Huffman Poulsen is a consultant, former military pilot, author, and speaker, and she pulls from a wealth of experience and personal testimony to train and educate on the topic of developing grit. She grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, and attended Duke University in North Carolina, where she went through the ROTC program. And then after going active duty, she was in the first group of women to fly the Apache attack helicopter in the U.S. Army. She describes developing grit like building a muscle and believes that this whole process starts with the simple but often overlooked step of understanding your own story. And then from there your core purpose. She transitioned out of the military, spent time in the corporate world, and founded the Grit Institute Online, which offers stories and lessons from female leaders. Shannon's newest book just released, The Grit Factor, Courage, Resilience, and Leadership in the Most Male-Dominated Organization in the World, and I, I've got a copy, highly recommend it, so here we go. I actually have my copy right here. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> That's great. It is so phenomenal. I am just recommending it left and right. So welcome. Thank you for your time. I was, uh, I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about your family, actually. So I know that you've got two boys. What are, what are their names and ages? <laughs> I have two boys who are seven and 10, and their names are Jude and Samuel. And they are uh, very energetic. (laughs) I'm sure. And I believe you just celebrated your 13th wedding anniversary on the day of the book launch. Is that right? Yes. I know they didn't ask me to to pick the book launch. I was grateful for the September 8th choice. That's also our 13th anniversary. So yeah, my husband and I met at business school and and were married 13 years ago. So that was going to be my next question. So you, you met at business school. Very, very cool. Congratulations on that as well. 
to start off with some of the questions, I was actually listening to your interview on the Today Show. I was just wondering if you would mind sharing your helicopter analogy on how facing our fears can cause resistance that actually helps us rise. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I mean, it is such sort of perfect metaphor, but I will often right, I'm talking to a group of people, start out with um, telling them the story of the first time that I walked out onto the tarmac. And I learned how to fly down at Fort Rucker, Alabama, the home of the Army's flight school. And I remember that first day walking out on the tarmac towards the Apache helicopter. And I've already been through a year of the initial entry rotary wing and the aviation officer basic course. Uh, so I'd already been spending lots of time on tarmacs and in the Huey and the 58, but I'd never even imagined myself in something like the Apache. I mean, it was 58 feet long, right? It's um, 12 feet high. It's 18 feet across. It's powered by two 1850 horsepower engines. It has three different sight systems on its nose that see in day and night in adverse conditions. It has a 30 millimeter high explosive cannon under the belly and the wings can hold any combination of the 2.75 inch folding fin aerial rocket and the anti-tank Hellfire missile. So I walked out on the tarmac toward this Apache on this winter day in Alabama, and I had this shiver going up and down my back. I was excited, I was terrified, but I wasn't about to let anybody know that. I had to, in that moment, believe myself to be better than the doubts that I was feeling. You know, I asked, was asking myself, who am I to fly this thing? You know, I was an English major in college. And I walk out on the tarmac towards the Apache, and I had just started to hear the people around say, because they had just been open to women, say, you know, what do women think they need to fly this thing for anyway? Why do women need to be in attack aviation? And both doubting myself and hearing those voices, it was really difficult. And in that moment, I had to decide that I was going to be the one that was going to claim my own narrative. I was going to own my own story. I was going to be better than any of those fears and any of those doubts. And so I walked out, I put one foot up onto the wheel, the other foot up onto the forward avionics bay. I reached forward and I opened that all glass cockpit that opens up and out like a Lamborghini. And, uh, and then I talked about the, the, the takeoff procedure and taxiing out on the runway for takeoff. And then I'll ask folks in the audience, you know, do you know which way you take off in the Apache? Most people say up. It's a pretty good guess. Uh, it is the ultimate end goal. But in the Apache, like in any other aircraft, you turn the nose to face the wind. And when you use it the right way, the resistance will help you to rise. And I think that's an outstanding metaphor for the challenges that we face in our own lives, whether it's challenge, whether it's change, whether it's feeling overwhelmed is that the best way that you take on anything is to turn towards it and go straight through it. You never meet anything hitting it sideways with good effect, right? And so that idea that that resistance helps you to rise, I think is one that, um, that I come back to again and again. That is such good imagery and, and definitely one that when I first heard you say that, I just told myself, okay, well, I'm gonna keep that one in my back pocket for whenever the situation arises. Your live book launch event was excellent. Uh, I wanted to ask during the Q&A, somebody asked a, a question and you briefly mentioned how the military tries to make you a certain way that you don't have to be necessarily. So I was wondering, how did you lead comfortably, maintain your femininity and still just lead as a woman secure in her own skin? 
Yeah, I don't know that I always did it well. I mean, that's the thing. And that's why I think it's such an important conversation topic is, um, is how I reacted to the challenge was how I reacted to the challenge at that time and place. And so I tell that mm. story, you know, I, I, when I was first arriving at Fort Bragg, it was my first duty assignment after I had been trained at Fort Rucker. I was arriving to the 229th Attack Aviation Regiment. I was the only woman out of 120 male Apache pilots. And uh, I was aware all of a sudden, really, that this was not going to be the same as other challenges that I had faced, right? This was going to be an environment where many people wondered whether or not I should be there at all. And some of them didn't want me to be there. And, um, and so I didn't want to give anybody one thing to say. And I had my hair cut super short up the back, which, you know, nobody told me to do. But I didn't, again, want to give them any reason to have anything to say about me, that I was expecting something different or thought that I could be different. Um, I made sure that I maxed my PT test, you know, every time. Like, that was terrible. There was never going to be someone that says, oh, well, she's a girl, you know, like that. I was going to be the best at PT. And I, I was an athlete growing up. That was not... I won't say it wasn't hard, but it, it was just an easy given for me. And, you know, I shot top gun as a platoon leader. Like I, I made sure that I excelled. And, um, and at the same time, like cutting my hair short was not true to who I was or how I wanted to present myself. I think I ended up, I think there were aspects of how I ended up leading that were not true to who I was and ultimately were, were reasons that I didn't end up staying in for a career is I, I don't know that I navigated that well. I think the people, the, the great thing about the grit factor, by the way, in, in writing the grit factor was saying, when a young lieutenant reached out to me and asked me to be her mentor, as she started flight school was thinking, oh my gosh, like I navigated all of these challenges in a certain way for an integration of women into attack aviation at a certain time. And there's so many other experiences of incredible people doing incredible things. So I went out and interviewed dozens of women in the vanguard of their fields, all women, all military, it happens, but they're early women general officers, a combat rescue swimmer, a submariner, one of the first women army rangers, you know, this incredible cohort of leaders. Because I wanted to say, you know, I may have failed in this, but someone else might have done this better. Maybe there's other things that we can take away from this. And one of the things that you take away is that you've got to be able to find a way to lead authentic to who you are. And if you don't, it's not sustainable. And I don't know that I ever really found that sweet spot. I think the place that did resonate for me and that I feel very good about what I was able to do was understanding that leadership is about people first and taking care of my people. And that was always critical to me as a, uh, an officer wearing the uniform. It was also critical to me when I worked in the corporate world as well. It's critical to me as a, as a mom. So I think that is that understanding is something that I feel like I did well, but being true to who I was, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I was still figuring it out. And oftentimes in your twenties, you are still figuring it out. So especially as a woman in an environment that is so not just male, but like macho, right? There's that whole thing that goes along with it. So answer, it's a long answer to your question. No, that's a, that's a great answer. And I think it actually just killed two birds with one stone. Cause I was also going to ask what made you write your book. And so is, is that part of the reason just in that mentoring relationship you saw where you maybe wish you had done things uh, more authentically and then you were able to kind of just put it all in your book and then give everyone your lessons learned? Is that sort of how that spurred on? Yeah, and not just mine. I mean, that's that's what makes the grit factor so powerful is there are mm -hmm. dozens of women in the fields that are part of this, of the findings of the grit factors. The grit factor is organized into three different sections, commit, learn, and launch. 
and it comes, those coalesced around the stories and the lessons that all of these leaders were sharing with me, as well as my own stories, and then going back to do the supporting research as well. So this is all very research supported, but also narrative driven, right? Because we learn best through story. There's, there's the science is clear on that. I know it from my own experience. I'm sure you do too. And so I wanted to be able to share these stories in part because women leaders often don't share their stories. I think we're, we're brought up often to be more modest or, or our culture suggests that. Um, but both women and men leaders need to hear these stories. And so I'm so grateful and truly honored to be able to bring these other leaders' stories to bear and to be able to say, hey, out of all of this incredible data, this is what coalesces as really, really critical. You know, this commit, learn, and launch. Commit is owning your own story, drilling down the core purpose. That's owning your past, owning your narrative, right? Deciding that you're in charge of your story and staying connected to what matters the most. Commit is about engaging in the present and launch is really about that future orientation. And there's lots that we could break out of those two as well. But, um, but I, I'm grateful because it's the book that I wish that I would have had. It's the book that I wish that I would have had, not just starting out, but also at various transitions and various challenges in the corporate world as well. So it's really written for those, those places that I would have wished to have had a book like this. And I am so encouraged to hear from so many people, men and women, that it's been really meaningful in navigating their own challenges as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you wrote it. So I guess kind of leading off of that in, uh, in all that I've listened to of you sharing just about some of that resistance that you encountered both prior to launching your military career and during, I haven't personally heard you recount those stories and conversations with any sort of a, a vengeful or resentful tone. I think that so often we can take something that someone says and really let it get under our skin and then we just totally swing in the opposite direction and then all of a sudden the the reason why you're doing what you're doing just has this very fluid, not very substantial foundation because it's based in that resentful attitude. So I was just wondering how how did you stay level and I guess for lack of a better way to say it, how did you stay level and let the haters hate without letting that become your new and superficial motivation? I think the biggest thing is staying focused, right? And you've got to stay focused on your work um, and, and understand that where you put your thoughts is where your focus is going to be. And if you want to do the work, you're going to have to focus on the work and that will take a concerted effort to say, I'm not going to listen to this other stuff. It doesn't matter. Now you do need to be able to accept constructive criticism, right? So there's a fine line in all of that. But if it's simply people that are saying, well, you don't get to do this because you're a woman or you can't do this because you're, you know, whatever, whatever that um, fill in the blank is, those people are not worth worrying about. And I'm not going to say that it never bothered me. It did bother me. Um, I had to make a conscious decision not to focus on it. And I think for anyone who's going to be successful in the face of resistance, you are going to have to make a conscious effort to not focus on that and to focus on what it is that you can do. I will say I see it in politics right now too. There's so much whining and slamming and um, I'm like, you know what, if you want to focus on making a change, focus on the change. Don't focus on that stuff. Focus on the change. And, and that's how things get done. They don't get done by the people that are whining. <laughs> Definitely not. I guess kind of related to that too is in just maintaining that mental stronghold, you talk a lot about core purpose. It's been in some interviews you've done. It's in your book. And I was wondering if you could just tell us what that is, your definition of core purpose and what your core purpose is. Yeah. And this is such a big conversation. I actually think there might be a follow-on book on this <laughs> because it's so big and nuanced and, uh, and critical, honestly. And I think 
your core purpose is the reason that you're here, right? It's the reason that you're here. I actually have never defined it specifically in that sense. And that's a hard thing to know. Like I used to ask myself, and this is why I came up with the exercise that I give you in, in the grit factor. I used to really envy the people who knew, like they knew they wanted to study red ants in China, right? And then they, they do that for their whole life. And they've always known they wanted to do that. And I'm like, well, I've never been that person. Like I like to do a lot of things and I like to do a lot of things well. And I like to dabble in other things, but I felt that like one thing. Yeah. And so this is the reason that you're here. And so when I do the exercise that I will not talk about on your podcast, but will refer people to the grit factor to do for themselves, it's not a big secret, but it's, uh, <laughs> but anyway, it's, but it's so worth it to go through by yourself. Yeah. And it's worth taking the time, right? Like if you, if you try to rush through it, I don't think you get the, the real um, value out of it as much, but um, I came down to service as my core purpose. And I will say when I've done this exercise in a workshop with, uh, with corporate groups and others, I will have people say, well, what if, you know, I'm, I'm going an extra level beyond this, or what if I come up with more than one? And, you know, I recently put myself through a second exercise that's related, which is not in the book. So I can talk to you about kind of how I'm developing it. And it's really, um, it's really looking at different components of who you are, what makes you up and, and why you're here, right? Service is the thing that I think I can trace through all these big decisions in my life and the things that have mattered the most to me. I came up with um, serve, create, learn, and love. And I have this new exercise now where you make yourself a shield, actually, with some visuals as well as, as choosing four words. But if you have three words, that's great. And if you have five words, that's great. Um, so that it, it may be more nuanced. It doesn't have to be one thing. But you do need to, it can't be 10 things either, right? You can't manage 10 things. So, um, so core purpose is why you're here. And spending time to understand why you're alive, why you're on this planet, uh, that's important stuff. Because that's the work, right? That's the work in our our one wild and precious life, as Mary Oliver says. So, that's that's really great, and I like that idea of having uh, being able to finish with more than one purpose or, or descriptor. I appreciate also just the humility that you're answering all these questions with, by the way. Another kind of follow-on question that I had was, uh, I think that your first book is just eloquently written. It is the most poetic description of tragedy and, and emotions that people go through, but they don't necessarily verbalize. And I think that you gave people an absolute gift with just verbalizing and, and writing your experiences. But I was wondering, as you went through the tragic loss of your father and his wife, how did you lead or not lead? Um, maybe things that you wish you had done better as you were going through that heaviness while still juggling uh, a lot on your plate and, and balancing your work. So in other words, I guess, what advice would you offer to someone who's balancing a lot of different things, but still has an emotional heaviness on their plate? Yeah. You know, and, and the best leadership example that I can give relative to that time, and, and my first book is called North of Hope, and it, um, it is a memoir of a trip up in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which I took the year after my father and stepmother had been on a kayaking trip and had been killed by a grizzly bear uh, while they were camping. And I took the same trip that they took the year after they died. And I weave those two trips together because I have their journals still from their trip, uh, as well as little interludes of singing the Mozart Requiem with Itzhak Perlman, who was um, conducting the Seattle Symphony Chorale at the time. So 
uh, it was a really meaningful book to write, really difficult book to write. Books are difficult to write, period. <laughs> so, uh, and it was obviously a very personal, it's a very personal story. I was working at Microsoft at the time. I'd been working at Microsoft for six months in a position in finance. Uh, which was not a good fit for me or my skill set or my temperament. Um, but as my dad liked to say, it was a very practical sort of a job that you could do anywhere and uh, take anywhere. And so um, it, was, it wasn't the right fit. I was doing fine, but I wasn't excelling, you know. And um, so the example of leadership I want to give, well, I'll, I'll just say the only thing that I would say that, that I would recommend to others is I think I did a good job and I'm grateful for making space to take care of myself. And I realized at the funeral that we had for my father and stepmother, our priest that was there came up. It was, you know, the week within the week that they had died. And um, he said, you know, you think that this is difficult now. He said, in six weeks, it's going to be extremely difficult. That's when it's all going to hit and everyone wow. will have left because their condolences and then they go on, but things hit home and they really settle in in six weeks. And I really took that to heart. And I sort of almost thought of myself as a project because my dad, I was very close to my dad. And so I, I signed up for a grief group, which is not something that I would normally do or be comfortable with. I had a counselor. I um, made sure that I said no to things uh, more than I said yes. I had to cut a lot out because I just did not have bandwidth. Like I would schedule a trip with a friend. I remember one specifically, she was living in Iowa and I just canceled it the week before. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I don't have the energy. And I, I don't know if she understood that actually ever, um, but, um, but it was necessary. And I understood that there was very little that was necessary except to get through. And I honored that. And I don't mm -hmm. think that's something I could have done except out of necessity. Um, but the example I'd love to give for leadership for you, since your podcast has, uh, is focused on leadership as well, is at work. Um, my boss at work had met my dad and stepmom briefly. And when this happened, I called him and I expected because both my dad and stepmom had died that I would have to quit my work because the whole house was going to have to be, um, you know, packed up, things sold, things given away. Um, I mean, there was 40 years in that house, right? And, um, and so my boss said, look, if you want to come back to work next week, because that's what's best for you, you can come back next week. If you need to take three months, you take three months. Your job is here. You just do whatever you need to do. You have a blank check. And it was truly exceptional. That is exceptional leadership, right? And I don't know. I mean, I've only been at Microsoft six months and I was an average employee at that point, right? I think I turned out to be pretty good. But, I, but the other part of leadership that was really important in that was, was his giving me the space to do what needed to be done uh, for myself and for my family. And, uh, and then the second part of it was that his boss, so my boss's boss, and he recognized that I was not in the right position where I could best contribute. And so when I came back, I had a different position that was a place where I could really excel. I could really contribute. I could make a major difference. And, um, and I think their understanding of that and, and coming up with another opportunity that was a much better fit really helped. And yet at the same time, there were times in the midst of even in that new position where I would need to close the shades in my office, or I would need to go out to my car and take some time for myself. And, um, and I gave myself the space to do that. And I honored that. And I don't think I could have done that when I was younger quite as well. Um, but, uh, but I was grateful for the leadership that my bosses showed at Microsoft. And I was grateful for, um, for the wisdom, I guess, that, that allowed me to, to take the time that I needed to start to heal. What a blessing. Uh, I'm glad that you had such good leadership there. And especially during 
such a critical time. I think there's something so counterintuitive about disciplining yourself to take the time when you need to, knowing right. that in the long run, that will produce much more fruit. You'll be so much more efficient and productive, but it just, it doesn't connect for most people most of the time. I know that I personally really struggle with that. It's like something you have to force yourself to do. Well, it's, I mean, right now with children, I will say, I never understood this before I had children when people say, oh, well, you know, moms don't get, take care of themselves or just, and I'm like, wow, I, I have a, I have the hardest time just taking time to work out, which used to be kind of my thing because I, it feels selfish suddenly. Right. And, um, Anyway, it's very hard. Yeah, no, you, and you do because you've got to take, and I'm starting to re recognize, I think, after this huge push, I've been working really hard in our community to bring a new library to our community and, and running a over $5 million capital campaign, and which is all volunteer. We run a lay fellowship for our, our church uh, in our little valley. I work, obviously, I've been writing the book and I have my kids. And so I have had no no bandwidth. And it just feels so selfish for me to, to take any time. And I'm starting to realize that it, that has taken its toll. And if I don't start to take mm -hmm. that time to say, Hey, an hour a day, I can work out, you know, like I need to take that. Um, I'm not going to be able to keep doing this. You know, I'm not going to keep up with the kids. I'm not going to be able to, to keep uh, doing the level of work that I expect of myself. And so that is a hard, hard thing. And I think especially for women um, for some reason, but yeah, yeah, it's still hard. I went to a leadership seminar and um, they they asked us to keep this part anonymous but one of the presidents of the United States yeah. said very transparently that he worked out for an hour every single day I'm sure there were some missed days when you know catastrophe struck but right so like that's a person with a whole lot on a plate and they still just put that at the top of the list so they can do everything else that much better the next couple of questions, I can't take all the credit for these because I actually reached out to some other people and, and took a poll and said, hey, what would you ask? So the first of these is mine, actually. So devouring all of this, all of your content on grit, I started to register, okay, grit is a really valuable attribute. How can I instill this in my future children? I don't have children yet, but I was wondering how do you try to instill grit in your children? <laughs> I could ask that actually, you'd be surprised pretty much at every conference that I speak at. And I really I have to start with I'm just a parent. I am not a parent educator nor a child psychologist. But I will say Angela Duckworth has a great chapter in her book about parenting. Um, uh, among those things is that, uh, and I don't want to actually quote her because I'll misquote some of her. So I'll just tell you what we do, part of which was informed by my reading of her. But um, one of the things is that if you sign up to do something like a sport or a club or an instrument, you finish the year, you finish the season, you finish the year, you don't quit, right? You don't get to quit because you don't, oh, I don't really like it or I don't really like the coach or... I have to run too much. I mean, you, you finish it. Um, and she will say, actually, as they're older, you finish it, you, you stick with something for two to three years. So that's part of it. Um, music is a big part of our family's life. And man, that requires grit. If you're going to have your kids play music, I will just say it will take just about everything out of you to make it happen. Um, and uh, I figured it out for the first one, but not for the second kid yet. So the second thing is they have to do hard things, right? I mean, you have to do, you learn to do hard things by doing hard things. And so part of that is talking to them about it. The Carol Dweck research is pretty clear that when you teach children, when you tell children, hey, if you work hard at this, your brain's going to get bigger, you're going to get smarter, then they will work harder at it, right? And otherwise, they may not. They may say, oh, this is too hard. I, I, you know, I just like to do stuff I'm good at. And, um, and so pushing them to do that. Also saying, 
when something doesn't work out, almost celebrating it, saying, oh, this is actually awesome. Great, this didn't work. Now we get to try something else. We know this doesn't work. So we're gonna try something else. These are all, by the way, techniques we should use on ourselves, right? Because the reality is anything you do for your kid is something you've got to learn for yourself. So those are all big pieces of it. Um, we also, you know, we do a lot of backcountry stuff. So we do a lot of backpacking and hiking. If you go out into the outdoors, you will be uncomfortable and that's a good thing, right? It's good to learn how to be uncomfortable. And, uh, and yeah, I think we have very high expectations that are, I mean, certainly in line with our capabilities, but we expect them to work and they do chores around the house and they will work. <laughs> so they, they also, um, they both fortunately like to work to, to earn money as well, but they do, we have a um, family policy that one third goes to charity, their choice of charity, one third goes to their college savings and one third they're able to keep. And so they also need to understand that responsibility of working and that responsibility of contribution, um, which I think all plays into grit, right? I think it all plays into like that feeling of, of worthiness for yourself that you are contributing, that what you do does matter in lots of different ways. But really it comes down to you learn how to do hard things by doing hard things. But it can be hard, especially when they're little, because if you're teaching them to finish unloading the dishwasher once they've started, it's going to take you six times as long. And you just have to do it. <laughs> you just have to be with them and walk, you know, let them do it. Uh, not go in there and do it for them ever, right? I mean, unless they're, they're really struggling. But, um, but let them struggle a little. It's a good thing. You sound like my mom and coming from me, I promise that is the highest compliment. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, that's all great. Uh, I feel like it almost takes more patience to take that route, but obviously it pays off in the long run because then you have, you know, hardworking individuals. Um, I, the next question uh, is, what is a philanthropic cause that is close to your heart? Mm. My time and sanity and money is all going to uh, building a new library in our rural community. We have um, a lot of second homes, but we have 30% poverty and 50% kids on reduced and free lunch. And I believe fervently that public spaces and specifically libraries dedicated to learning and education is what our country needs more than anything else. And, uh, and so we are giving until it hurts financially, giving until it hurts with my time and my energy and anything that I might be able to, to know or contribute. I believe in it 100%. We're, we're very, very close to having the library funded. We'll have a couple of secondary phases to fund the landscaping, hardscaping, and, and a few other things. It's going to be, um, it's going to be the center of our community. And that builds actually, the science shows coming back to grit, it builds community grit and community resilience. Uh, it's, that's actually very, very clear. And that's something that we need in the, where we live in Eastern Washington, where we have wildfires and we have floods and now we have COVID and we have the economic challenges that come with, with a, a rural community. And so it's, um, it's an incredible honor to have a chance to be a part of this. And I'm incredibly grateful. And I'm also exhausted. <laughs> so. I'm sure. Uh, but certainly a very worthwhile cause. That will be very exciting when that's finished. After that, what is the one thing that you think should be taught in every school? Oh, good question. I think ethics should be taught in every school. I think ethics should be taught starting in junior high and it uh, should be required and, uh, and it should be taught all the way up through high school. That's, that's a really good choice. Do you have a ritual to calm yourself down when you get nervous or overwhelmed? Um, you know, I got asked once if I had a morning ritual, which I almost just started, like I almost spit out my coffee laughing so hard because I feel like people that have morning rituals do not have children. 
<laughs> but, or, or they're men because their wives certainly do not have them. Um, what I should do is go out and exercise. Um, that would work. Uh, what I did the other day, I was completely overwhelmed. And um, we've, we also have just built a new house and that's taken two years and there's still a punch list and it's, that is exhausting by itself. Um, although my husband gets the credit for doing most of the bed leg work on it. I took a bath and I've never done that before, right before bed. Like as, as, I mean, I've taken baths, but I haven't like done that in order to kind of calm myself down. And, um, and so I took a bath and I used my kids' bubbles. I also uh, will sometimes, actually I'm, I'm uh, Episcopalian. So I have used the Book of Common Prayer has a morning prayer service and a Compline service. And the Compline service, which is beautiful, we can, you can listen to it from St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle at 9.30 on Sundays on King FM. I commend to all your listeners. You can stream it even in uh, North Carolina and <laughs> wherever you are. But also reading through it is really beautiful. I mean, it's a mm. beautiful, beautiful, prayerful service and a wonderful way to end the day. And um, so that is, has been something that's been increasingly important to me. That was the most perfect answer because the friend of mine that asked me to ask that question is going to love your answer. What is the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received? I'm going to think of this, uh, well, the, the most important thing you will ever do is, the per, is decide who it is that you will spend the rest of your life with. So don't make that decision quickly or easily. And I am incredibly grateful for having met the person that I did. We didn't meet or get married till we were 35 years old, and it was very worth the wait. So that's uh, David Brooks for you, actually. We'll, we'll say that, and I agree wholeheartedly. But relative to work, just because I know you have a lot of uh, young leaders out there, the best advice I ever had was from a... Uh, the second most senior person at Guidant Corporation, which became Boston Scientific, who was a woman. And she said, and I think she is 100% right, that who you work for matters much more than what it is that you're doing. So it's not about, oh gosh, I want to work on the Xbox at Microsoft, right? It's, am I working for a leader who will develop me and develop my skills and advocate for me and push me and help me be my best? And so who you work for matters more than what it is that you're doing. I, I really like that too. And that, that sounds a lot to me like valuing mission alignment, which it requires going below the surface level sometimes. It, it is. It's mission alignment, but it's also truly is that that person has so much power, frankly, over your career and your development. And so you need to find someone who is devoted to people development and devoted to your development and your opportunities for growth um, and contribution, right? It's about your contribution, really, ultimately to your team or your organization. So that person has to be 100% devoted to your contributions, which means that you develop, which means that you're given, you know, leadership and learning opportunities. And so finding somebody who is committed to their people and, and thereby committed to you and your, your contributions is critical. I mean, ultimately you will not succeed without that. So. Absolutely. Very sound advice. If you were not any of the things that you are right now, if you were not an accomplished pilot, author, speaker, consultant, everything else, what do you think you might enjoy doing right now? So one of the, uh, so interesting, I've actually thought about writing a series of short stories about a person who takes different paths, but it's the same person that has taken different paths. I, um, I actually started divinity school at one point, um, and I would consider going back to divinity school, although we run this lay fellowship and I kind of prefer serving in that capacity, to be honest. I could have seen becoming um, 
becoming an Episcopal priest at one point. I now no longer think that, that that's necessary for, for serving in the way that I think God wants me to serve. So certainly would have been possible. The other thing that I hope to develop, and I could totally see myself being, is um, I have always loved art and painting. And I actually have just been ordering a lot of supplies because we have some big walls in our house. That's one of them where I'm keeping it open because I'm going to do the painting. And I'm, I am going to get in back into my art, but I think that if I were not doing what I was doing now, I would be writing fiction and painting. But that will come. There, you, you can do everything, but you can't do everything at once. That is a, um, also a very important piece of advice that is hard to take in your 20s because you think you can do it all at once. And the reality is you kind of got to give each thing its space. So I, I think if you wrote that series about one person being able to pursue multiple different things, <laughs> then uh, that would be something that many people would want to live vicariously through, uh, wishing that that could be them. Uh, but next question is a little hard for me to phrase, I guess. How do you balance being perceived as a leader versus being perceived as a stuck-up individual? This was also a question that you got in your live book launch where someone basically just said, you know, I really struggle being bold and then being misperceived as bossy or just any number of things that carry a negative connotation. Do you balance that or are you just you and you just trust that things will sort themselves out? I think I have tried to balance it at various points in my life. I think the reality is you need to be who you are. And I am now old enough, and this is the great thing about being in my late 40s, uh, I don't care. Like You can take me or leave me, and that's all right. I'm going to do what I'm doing, and I'm going to do it the best that I can, and I will take constructive feedback. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think uh, you cannot let yourself be limited by somebody else's failure of imagination. Take that one to the bank, because uh, there are many people who will try to limit you because they don't have the imagination uh, to, to be able to look outside themselves. And if they're uncomfortable with it, then they can go drink beer and watch their football game and be uncomfortable. That's fine. <laughs> you know, because I've got stuff to do and you've got stuff to do and you can't worry about what somebody else thinks about that. I mean, that's, again, no, nothing has ever been done by somebody who's worried about whether somebody else thinks they're too bossy, right? And, uh, and again, you look at your approach, obviously, like if something's, if it's not working for you to approach something that you've tried the same way multiple times and try varying your approach, but that doesn't mean not be who you are. And it doesn't mean not to do what you're here to do. Because once you've figured out what you're here to do, the rest of it doesn't matter, right? And you find your people, you find your people who are like, yeah, that's what we're doing. Let's do it, right? And you find the people who are like, who do you think you are? I've actually had a, <laughs> a grown man ask me that. And a grown woman asked me that as a grown woman, who do you think you are essentially is what they've said. And you know what? You just have to say, all right, good luck. See you later. And um, I'm going to keep working. So you'll run into that. And I think when you're bold and when you are audacious, which is one of the three tenets that I have in commit, learn, and launch, right? Part of launch is being audacious, being able to take risks, being able to go out and, you know, you get one light. You have one life. You have one opportunity to contribute and to live and to love. And, um, and you got to do that in that one life that you have. Life is short. And that is something that that experience of that first book taught me. So I guess the answer is I don't try to balance it anymore. I just um, spend time with the people who appreciate that. And I appreciate those people typically as well, because they've done those similar sorts of things. And they're a heck of a lot more interesting than the people who would rather sit around and talk about, I don't know, football or no offense to football. I know football is big in the South. <laughs> That's a, a good go-to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I feel like life's short and there's a lot to get done. And, um, and I have ways I, I hope I can contribute and I have ways I want to live and learn and love. And I don't want to, if somebody else is concerned about it, you, you just can't let the, that bother you at all. Yeah, life is too short and time flies by too quickly. 
Exactly. Let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Last, last question, just for people who want to get more of what you have to offer. Of course, I will be linking, like I said before, your website, um, your handle to follow you on social media, your where to get your books, both of them. But I was wondering if you could describe what you do through the Grit Institute and anything else that you would like to leave us with. Yeah, no, thank you. So I'm uh, online at shannonpolson.com and at thegritinstitute.com. The Grit Institute, uh, right now I have a training called Going for Grit, which is available just for individuals to take on their own. But I'm also going to set up very, very soon. So if you're on my email list, which I promise I don't email all that often, and I will let you know about the times that I'm going to lead people through the Going for Grit. And so Going for Grit is a six-week course that essentially follows the grit factor, basically chapter for chapter, more or less, and gives you some exercises, gives you some readings, gives you some reflections, and allows you to really internalize those lessons yourself. Um, I will also be having a series of live trainings um, as well that will be available on the Grit Institute. So just stay stay tuned, stay on my mailing list. Um, really what it is is an opportunity to share these lessons, these stories with you in person, online at least. And, um, and that's really the mission is to be able to share this as widely as we possibly can because again, the response has just been incredible and people are finding it incredibly valuable for themselves personally, but also I talk to these huge organizations where this is absolutely critical to the organization. And so I can also lead teams through, I can lead organizations through that training also. And I'm, I'm incredibly excited to share it with your listeners as well. Definitely a very valuable resource. I, I appreciate how it obviously couples with the book so that we can learn in multiple different parts of our brain and really let it sink in so that it can become something that sticks with us. Is there anything else that you would like to leave for the world of best you can be listeners? No, no, they were all great questions and such a, such a great conversation. So thank you, Brigitte. And all I would say is uh, to remember to turn the face the wind. And if you use it the right way, the resistance will help you to rise. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you again for your time and best of luck with everything else. Everybody go buy the book. I don't know if I've raved about a book to all my friends as much as I have about the grit factor in at least a long, long time, but it's excellent. And the exercises just make it double worth your while. So thank you again, Shannon. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Brigitte. Thanks so much for joining me on the Best You Can Be Leadership Podcast. If you are as excited as I am about diving into our potential and stepping into the very best versions of ourselves, then follow me on Instagram at bestyoucanbe and don't be afraid to send me a message. You can also visit bestyoucanbe.com and fill out a contact me form. I can't wait to meet you. In this episode, I've stuck my hand out to introduce myself to you, but go ahead and do the same for me. Tell me who you are, what your story is, and what you would like to see most in lessons to apply to your leadership experiences. Until next episode, keep going, keep growing, and keep becoming the best you can be. 